0: I'd like to ask you to please turn with me to our text for this morning, which is Exodus chapter 12, um, verses uh, 31 through 42, Exodus 12, 31 through 42, and we are... um, finishing up a sermon series uh, that's been looking at the first few chapters of the book of Exodus during this Lenten season. And um, as we said uh, when we started this series, the reason why we did that, um, used Exodus sort of as a lens into uh, the season of Lent and into Easter, is because in much the same way that the Israelites were stuck in slavery in Egypt, um, as sinful human beings, we are stuck in our slavery to sin. And yet, just like God made a way Uh, for the Israelites uh, to exit Egypt into freedom, he has also made a way for us as sinful people uh, to be freed from our slavery to sin. And that's exactly what we celebrate this morning in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so let's look at our text this morning again, Exodus 12, verses 31 through 42. And this is what it says. This is right after the 10th plague, by the way. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said to them, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped with clothing. They did as Moses instructed them and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and also clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed to the people, so they gave them what they asked for. And so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, and there were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them also, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought with them from Egypt, the Israelites baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven from Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time that the Israelites had lived, that the people of of Israel had lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of the 430 years to the day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord had kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, all the Israelites keep vigil on this night to remember and honor the Lord for generations to come. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, in his award-winning novel, Loris Eugene Vodolazkin tells the story of a 15th century Russian folk healer, pilgrim, and eventual monk whose name, unsurprisingly, is Loris. And after committing what he uh, considers to be an unforgivable sin, In his youth, Loris sets out on a journey seeking redemption that ultimately ends up taking him through Russia, across Eastern Europe and the Middle East, ultimately to Jerusalem, and then back again to his small, unremarkable hometown in the Russian countryside. And I won't uh, give away what happens, but once he's back home, Loris finally has an experience that he feels absolves him of the decades-long guilt that he's carried with him throughout his life. After years of carrying his sin and shame right before his death, Loris experiences the freedom that he's craved for so long, and the weight that he shouldered all those many years throughout his travels is suddenly lifted from him. I would assume that the Israelites probably felt much the same way in this text. 400 years. 430 to be exact. That's how long the Israelites had been in Egypt. That's how long they'd been foreigners in the land. That's how long they had been home away from home there. And as we said earlier in this series, most of those 430 years were probably pretty good. After all, when the Israelites originally came to Egypt, they came as guests. And yet, somewhere along the way, that had changed. The first few chapters of Exodus that we've been looking at throughout this series makes clear that at least for the last few of those 400 plus years, the Israelites' experience in Egypt had taken a marked turn for the worse. In fact, it had become downright terrible. Because rather than being favored welcome guests in the land, the Israelites had instead been oppressed, enslaved, and even targeted by genocide. But no longer. Because here in chapter 12, verses 31 through 42, the Israelites are finally on their way out of Egypt. Their chains are gone, they've been set free, and they are heading into the new kind of life that God has set before them. It's here, at this moment, on the heels of the first Passover, as they walked out of Egypt, the Israelites can finally say that they are free, no longer slaves. The weight that they've shouldered for so long has been lifted and they're on their way to freedom. But it's not just uh, the metaphorical weight of their slavery that's gone because the Israelites are pretty physically free in this passage as well. First, they're physically free in the sense that they're no longer burdened with the slave labor that the Egyptians had imposed on them. Their bodies no longer bear the literal weight of slavery and the hard work that they would have done. But they're also physically free in the sense that they're not really tied down with a lot of material possessions here in this text. Instead, from the passage, it seems pretty clear that they're traveling pretty light. Verse 34 says, The people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs, wrapped in clothing. And then a few verses later in verse 37, it says, The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So the Israelites aren't very tied down here. They're traveling by foot. They're carrying what little they have with them, mainly some dough. It's not very much, so they're able to do it. And at least part of the reason for that, part of the reason why they're traveling light here and not very tied down, is because they had to leave in a hurry. They had to leave in a hurry, first of all, because the Egyptians begged them to. Verse 33 says the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country for otherwise they said we will all die. And then in verse 39 it says with the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Remember again this is right after the 10th plague where after weeks of Pharaoh's hard-hearted and stubborn resistance to letting the Israelites go, God ultimately sends a plague on the firstborn of Egypt, killing them. And the Egyptian response, understandably, I think, is fear that God might expand that plague and kill all the rest of them too. And so desperate to get the Israelites out of their country before that happens, the Egyptians beg them to leave as quickly as they can. I'm sure the Israelites uh, didn't really want to stay all that much longer either, though. Because after you've been forced to live under oppression, slavery, and the threat of violence, when you get a chance to leave, you don't wait around to see how long it'll last. You just take it and go. I was actually listening to a podcast the other week where somebody told a story about that. Um, It was the Bible Project podcast, which if you've never listened to it, I'd recommend it, But on that particular episode, they were interviewing a pastor named Harvey Turner about his conversion experience and when he had become a Christian. And it's a fascinating story. I'll just say it's well worth the half hour that it takes to listen to it. Um, But I'll suffice it to say that when Turner was growing up, he wasn't exactly living the kind of life that would make you look at him and go, that guy seems like pastor material. Um, Much the opposite, actually. Um, because in the, t- in the episode, Turner recounts how he spent much of his teenage years and early adulthood as a drug dealer and low-level criminal in Reno, Nevada. One night, though, he and a bunch of his friends got pulled over by the cops, and they were up to no good, and the cops knew it. Um, and so they lined Turner and his friends up against the car, took their IDs, and then went back to their squad to run the info. And that's when Turner took off. He actually says in the episode, he doesn't really know why he ran, because he knew the cops had his ID, so they knew who he was. Um, But for whatever reason, he just felt like he had to make a break for it. He had to go. He had to try and get free. Eventually, the cops caught him, and he spent the night in prison. Um, And he's actually thankful for that, because that was the first step in his uh, path to converting to Christianity. But in that moment, lined up against his friend's car, with the cops running his info, he just felt like he had to run. And it's the same with the Israelites here. They have this window of opportunity. They have this chance at freedom. They don't know how long it's going to last. In fact, if you know the story, it doesn't actually end up lasting all that long because it doesn't take long for Pharaoh to come after them again. And so the Israelites take it, they make a break for it. They don't wait around to see what's going to happen. And so they pick up and they leave as fast as they can. They get up, they get out, and they go. And that's what we see in this text. The Israelites are on the move here. They are people in motion. They're no longer residents of a land sitting around and staying put. Instead, God has liberated the Israelites. He's set them free, and he's got them going. Can you imagine the joy that the Israelites must have had here as they leave Egypt? Can you imagine the relief that they must have felt? Can you imagine what it must have been like for these slaves to know that they're not going to be slaves anymore? Moses and his sister Miriam will actually sing about that joy just a few chapters after this. But even here as they were leaving Egypt, I imagine that the Israelites must have been singing and dancing already. I imagine there must have been a pip in their step and a lightheartedness that nothing could weigh down. Their joy must have been incomparable, all-consuming and utterly uncontrollable. Can you imagine? Hopefully you can, because the same should actually be true of us. You see, like the Israelites, we're traveling light this morning, too. After all, this is Easter Sunday morning, my friends. This is a day of joy. This is a day of celebration. This is a holiday if ever there was one. Just like the Israelites had the weight of slavery lifted off their shoulders, we've had that weight lifted from us too. That's what we celebrate on Easter. This is a day of liberation, a day of redemption, the day when we celebrate that we have been set free. Just like the Israelites were freed from their slavery in Egypt because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we're freed from our slavery to sin too. How incredible is that? It's awe-inspiring, unimaginable, unbelievable, almost too good to be true, And yet it is. It is true. That's why we call it amazing grace, right? Because it truly is amazing. And that ought to fill us with joy. You know, as Christians, I think that we should actually be the most joyful people in the world. I'm just going to say that again so it sinks in. As Christians, we should be the most joyful people in the world. Our joy ought to be contagious. It ought to be undeniable. It ought to be one of the first things that people notice about us when they meet us. And not just on days like this, by the way, either, right? I mean, as Christians, our joy is sort of next level up on Easter, right? And other holidays like it. But even on ordinary run-of-the-mill days, it should be there. There should be no such thing as a crabby Christian. You're laughing because you've met a few, I'm sure. (laughs) There should be no such thing as a believer who others want to avoid. It shouldn't happen. After all, we're people who live in the light and hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're people who have been redeemed, renewed, and given new life. We're people who have been transformed from being rebels and enemies of God into his very children. If we don't have reason for joy, who does? And yet I wonder. I wonder sometimes if that comes through. Do you think people notice that about us? Do you think they can see that we're traveling light as Christians? Do you think they notice the pip in our step and the joy we have because of the gospel? Do you think they'll see that in you later on today? Or do people experience us a bit differently? Theologian Karl Barth has a quote about that. I first heard this years ago, actually, back when I was in high school, and I have searched high and low for it since. I've never been able to find exactly what he said, so I'll have to paraphrase it. But during a radio address at one point, Barth was asked what he thought the world would like to say to Christians. And after giving it some thought, this was his response. Speaking to Christians, he said something along the lines of, "'We should like to see you be less timid and more bold. We should like to see this good news you talk about so often but put into action.' We should like to see you be more confident. Why are you always so afraid? And you live with such little joy. And you live with such little joy. My friends, that should not be so. We should be known for our joy. We should overflow with it. It should shine forth through whatever circumstances we may be dealing with. The goodness of our lives should not wash it out. And the difficulties we struggle through should not overpower it. You know, I grew up uh, near a model airplane field. Um, And during the summer, when the weather was good, there were almost always people out there flying their model airplanes around. And from a distance, where I lived, where our family had our house, those planes going up and down and flying all around blended together into sort of a constant hum, this never-ending buzz. And as a kid, before I knew what made that sound, I just assumed it was the sound that summer made. Just this constant hum that reminded you of sun and and warmth and fun. Yeah, I was kind of, I needed to learn some things when I was younger. And yet that's how our joy as Christians should be. The Easter joy that we have should be a constant hum, a never-ending buzz in our lives. It should always be there, always in the background, always reminding us and others of the presence and love and grace and mercy that we have in Jesus Christ from our God. As Christians, we should travel light. We should be light of heart and we should be constant conduits of joy because of the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. But there's another sense in which we should also be traveling light. Not just lighthearted and joyful, but we should also be light of step. And what I mean by that is that just like the Israelites were a people on the move as they made their way out of Egypt, we need to be people on the move as well. God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and they followed him where he led. They were going. After a centuries-long stay in one place, they were up, out, and on a mission. And so are we. In a sense, Easter is the holiday that gives us our marching orders. It tells us to get going. It tells us to get moving. It tells us to get out there into the world and spread the good news of the gospel. At least that's what it did for the first Christians. After all, what do we see after that first Easter Sunday in the Bible? What happens next? Where does the story go? It goes everywhere, right? That's the book of Acts. After the resurrection, the apostles, disciples, and first believers in Jesus began to spread out. Acts 1 verse 8 actually gives us the outline for how that spread went. Just before his ascension, Jesus tells his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they were. The gospel went viral, if you will. Okay? It went from being this fringe idea that just a small group of people believed in one part of the world to very quickly spreading throughout the known world, all in a remarkably short period of time. And as Christians today, we are called, given the task, the work, to continue that. We, too, need to be people in motion, spreading out and sharing the joy we have in Jesus with as many people as possible. We need to see ourselves as Jesus' witnesses, too, in Granville and in all Grand Rapids in Michigan and to the very ends of the earth. Easter is our marching orders. It's not just a holiday we celebrate, but it's one that we embody and share, too. A friend of mine once asked me about that. Um, This friend isn't a believer. She's not hostile to the Christian faith or anything. She just didn't grow up with it. And so as a result, she's got a lot of questions about the Christian faith and about uh, Christian believers too and why we do some of the things that we do. Um, There's a lot about being a Christian that she just doesn't understand. And one of those things is the Christian practice of evangelism. You see, my friend is also friends with some people who are part of other faiths and other religions. For instance, she has a few Muslim friends. Um, She's pretty close with a Jewish rabbi. And so she's correctly noticed that people in other religions don't really evangelize, at least not the same way that Christians do. Um, And so she asked me about that a few years ago. She said, Brandon, why is it that you Christians feel the need to try and convert other people to believe what you believe? And I'll be honest, um, this didn't sound nearly as good as I'm about to present it now, because I've had time to think about it and write it out, okay? But in that conversation, I said something kind of like this. The reason Christians evangelize is because the Christian faith isn't really like other religions. Other religions are primarily about action. They're about doing the right things so that you can have the right relationship with God so that when you die, you get to go to the right place, and it's not that our actions are unimportant as Christians. We do think that they're important. It's just that the gospel isn't first and foremost about a new set of actions. Instead, the gospel is first and foremost news. It's good news. In fact, we believe it's the best news in the world. And that's because the gospel is the good news that through Jesus Christ, God is reconciling his creation back to him. It's the good news that in Christ there is forgiveness and renewal. And it's the good news that in him and him alone, there is life. And when you think about it that way, when you have news like that, you can't help but share it. That's why Christians share their faith. Because we think we have good news that will change the world and everyone in it too. And we want them to hear it. Again, we call that news the gospel. And in a nutshell, what it basically says is that like the Israelites in our passage this morning, we've been set free. Again, God made this world good. And as part of his good world, he made us good too. But rather than live in God's good world, in the kind of good relationship with him that he created us to, We chose to live our own way instead. We turned our backs on God. We rejected him. And we chose to live our lives the way we wanted rather than the way that he had created us. And so as a result, what happened is that we plunged ourselves and God's entire creation into sin, death, and despair. And even if we wanted to fix it, even if we wanted to sort of rewind and go back to the way that we were and the way that God made his world, we couldn't. Because we were too warped and distorted to put ourselves right. We were too wrecked and ruined to be repaired. We were too sinful and stuck to save ourselves. In other words, we really were slaves. And so God did that all instead. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue and redeem us, to restore and renew us, to wash and purify us and make us right with him again. We were captives to our sins, stuck in our bondage, and hopefully enslaved. But Christ liberated and delivered us. He set us free to live new lives of faith, and He made us God's dearly and beloved children once more. That's the hope that we have because of this holiday. That's the new life that we have because of Jesus' resurrection, and that is the joy. That we are called to live out each and every day of our lives. We're traveling light today, my friends. In fact, we are always traveling light because of the freedom and joy that we have in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you have set us free, you have brought us out of our slavery to our sin. And you have made it possible for us to live as your people, renewed, redeemed, and restored in right relationship with you, anticipating the day when someday you will come again to make everything new. And this is all because of your son. It's all because of the hope that we have in him. It's all because of the resurrection new life that we celebrate on this day. So give us joy, Lord. Give us hope. Make us people on the move who are light of heart and light of step, pursuing your mission in the world. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.